0: God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary. If you're new with us, uh, can I have all of you open your Bibles to John's Gospel chapter 8. And if you are new with us, just to let you know we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We're looking at chapter 8 for a while. We'll be finishing chapter 8 today. And um, when we... uh, Entered into chapter 8, we uh, said that chapter 8 contains one of the seven I am statements of Jesus that John built his gospel around. Chapter 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Every time Jesus called himself I am, he was declaring that he was the voice from the burning bush. We're in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. When Moses asked God to tell him his name, God said, I am, that is my name. And so whenever Jesus called himself, I am, he was making a declaration of divinity. He was saying that he is the God of Israel who has now come in human form. Of course, his constant declarations of divinity put him at odds with the Pharisees who did not believe in him. And uh, led to this explosive confrontation we have been studying in chapter 8, where the Lord Jesus went four rounds with these Jewish leaders. Round one, we've subtitled everyone. Round one, uh, light and darkness, verses 12 through 20. Round two, uh, life and death, verses 21 to 30. Round three, freedom and bondage is the theme, verses 31 to 47. And then round four, Honor and Dishonor, verses 48 to 59. Now last week in our study, we entered into the final round of this confrontation where uh, Jesus tells these men that even though they didn't honor him as God in human form and Messiah, the only honor he sought was the honor of his Father in heaven. We pick it up in verse 48. Then the Jews answered and said to him, we do not, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges, that's the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews, the Pharisees, said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets uh, are dead? I mean, whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. If I say I do not know him, I would I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now folks, that is a question that we camped on last week and we want to finish up today. They brought up Abraham, that they were very big on Abraham, all right? What Jesus Christ is doing is saying to them, in essence, yes, I know you're Abraham's children, but you don't realize Abraham looked forward to one who would come. Of course, he was standing in front of them, the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham pointed to me. Abraham was important in your history because he he pointed to me. He believed. You don't believe my words. You don't honor me or the one who sent me, even though you say God is your father. Abraham is your father. You seek to kill me. Abraham never did that. So they brought up Abraham, so Jesus says, okay, let's talk about Abraham. That's kind of what we're doing here. Uh, The question we began to look at last time was, when did Abraham see Jesus' day? And for that matter, what was this day the Lord is referring to? Now, As we said last week, I believe that when Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced in seeing his day, Jesus' day, that it was a reference to Genesis chapter 22, where the Lord commanded Abraham to take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and offer him there to God. The important thing to understand is, because I want you to turn to Genesis 22. We started looking at it last week. We want to finish this week. But remember one thing. Jesus said in Psalm 40 verse 7, in fact we just read it this morning, we know it was Jesus because the verse is quoted in Hebrews 10 verse 7 and attributed to Jesus. That the scroll of the book, the volume of the book, in fact in other words the entire Old Testament was written about me Jesus said. Of course the New Testament was written about Jesus directly, the Old Testament in type, in shadow, and prophecy, but it all spoke of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now that's important because Jesus did say in John 5, verse 39, to these very Pharisees whom he is now refuting and confronting, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But it is they that testify of me, and yet you refuse to come to me that I might give you this life. Genesis 22, as we said last week, is one of the greatest if not the greatest typological chapters in the bible to demonstrate this very thing because god communicates truth through type oftentimes in the old testament and genesis 22 is a prime example of this as god uses a type to communicate the greatest truth in the bible so look at genesis 22 verse 1 we We started looking at this chapter last time. Uh, Let me just back up a little bit. Verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Mount Moriah, as we said last week, is Calvary, Golgotha. The very same mount that 2,000 years later another father would offer his only begotten son upon that very mount, a son that he deeply loved for the sins of the world. As we said last week, the word Moriah in Hebrew means foreseen of Jehovah. In other words, the cross was not some you know hastily pieced together plan b when adam blew it in the garden it was foreseen it was the very plan of redemption that god had in place from the very beginning of creation revelation 13 verse 8 clearly tells us that so verse 3 so abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men his servants with him and isaac his son And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Again, Paul the Apostle says something in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4 that we need to bring in to the study at this point because in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4, Paul tells us with regard to the gospel that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, when Paul said that he had the Old Testament scriptures in mind. The question is, where in the Old Testament scriptures did it predict Messiah would die and resurrect on the third day? Well, many believe it was right here in Genesis chapter 22, in type, in type. It took Abraham three days to get to Mount Moriah. For those three days, Isaac was dead in his mind ever since God told him to take Isaac three days to Mount Moriah and offer him there on one of the mountains. And uh, so in the mind of Abraham, at that very moment when God said, kill your son, he died in Abraham's mind. Good as dead. Made the three-day journeys we're going to see as he took Isaac up the mount. Uh, made preparations to offer him there before he could plunge the knife into his heart. God stopped him at that moment and had him substitute a ram in place of Isaac. God never at any time wanted human sacrifice. This was all a test. As we said last week, God never, ever uh, commanded any human being to be sacrificed to him. And he didn't intend for Abraham to go through with this either, but it was a test. So God stops him. Uh, there was a ram stuck in the thicket by the horns. God said, offer the ram in Isaac's place. At the moment, God stopped Abraham from offering his son. Hebrews 11:19 tells us that Isaac was resurrected symbolically, figuratively in the mind of Abraham. So this is what we're talking about. This is what uh, the scholars think is probably what Paul was talking about, who was a rabbi, a scholar of Judaism, the scriptures, when Paul said that the gospel was written in the Old Testament about Jesus would die, rise from the dead, and on the third day was Genesis 22, they believe, is what Paul had in mind. Genesis 22, verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad, unfortunate translation, the Hebrew word means a young man in his 20s or 30s. All right. So not really uh, the lad, the young man. uh, And I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. I believe Isaac was in his early 30s, very probably around 33, because he's a type of Christ. And Jesus Christ was 33 years old, when he climbed that very same mountain, Mount Calvary, many years later to be offered there for the sins of the world. Genesis 22, verse 6, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, made him carry the wood up Mount Moriah, just like Jesus carried his cross made of wood up Mount Moriah, Mount Calvary. So Abraham had laid the wood on Isaac's back uh, and took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And then he said, Look, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. You see, Isaac understood that worship meant a sacrifice. And a sacrifice involved the killing of an animal. So he says, well, Father, we have the fire, we have the wood, but where is the lamb for the offering? To which Abraham responds, as my new King James translates it in verse 8, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb. Now, as we said last week, I really believe the King James Version more precisely and correctly communicates what Abraham Abraham actually said and believed. The King James translates this, Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. In other words, Abraham is not saying God will provide for himself a lamb. In other words, he'll bring one to us somehow. No. What Abraham is saying is that God will provide himself to be the lamb. As I said last time, this is the first place in the Old Testament that the word lamb appears. Now there is a law of hermeneutics, which is the Bible of science interpretation, called the law of first mention. Whenever a word appears for the first time, a significant word, lamb would not be a significant word if it wasn't connected to the Lamb of God in the New Testament. All right. So in this regard, the first time the word lamb appears, and the law of first mention says study that, Word, that concept, worship, atonement, marriage, when it appears first in the scriptures, Old Testament, it becomes the prototype for understanding that concept throughout the Bible. So, this is the first place in the Old Testament where the word lamb appears. The first place in the New Testament where the word lamb appears, as we said last week, is John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to be baptized, pointed his finger at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's interesting to me that the first time the word Lamb appears in the New Testament, it answers the question of the first time the word Lamb appears in the Old Testament. In other words, Isaac asked, Where is the Lamb for the offering? Behold the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So the two of them went Together, verse 8, up Mount Moriah. The prophet Amos said, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Obviously no. I believe that Abraham told Isaac as they were walking up Mount Moriah, You are the sacrifice, my son. If Isaac was around 33 years of age at this time, it meant that Abraham was 133 years old. Isaac could have easily overpowered his father, but instead he submitted to the will of his father, which meant, listen, he was a willing sacrifice. Just as Jesus submitted to the will of his father when he said, no one takes my life from me, I give it freely for the sheep, John 10. Also in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to his father three times to escape the cross the night before he was to be crucified But he said, "O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He was a willing sacrifice. Genesis 22, verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. I think, let me just stop and say this. I think with each step up Mount Moriah and with every task he did before he could offer Isaac there, Abraham's heart, who was at this point operating as a type of God the Father. But Abraham's heart must have been breaking more and more. Yes, he trusted God, no doubt. But that didn't mean he enjoyed the thought of inflicting pain and even death upon his son. Even as God the Father does not enjoy inflicting pain upon any of his sons and daughters. If he does, if he allows it, it is only because he has to teach us, he has to mold us, prune us into the image of Jesus Christ. It is necessary. It is necessary uh, that sometimes the Father allows pain in our lives, pain that we don't understand at the time. And when we don't understand what God is doing, fall back at what you do now that God is infinitely loving, wise, and always has your best, your eternal interests at heart. This was driven home to me years ago at a pastor's conference when one of our Calvary pastors, whose name is John, who lost his wife about three years earlier. So he was raising his three kids alone, and his youngest was three, a little girl. And uh, one day she developed a... um, for lack of a better term, a boil on her neck and took her to the doctor, fairly large. At The doctor, after examining this little girl, said, John, this, uh, this boil is filled with pus and poison. We have to lance it right now. Now, for some reason, they couldn't give this little girl any sedatives. So the doctor said, John, you're going to have to hold her down while I take the knife and lance this thing. Now, this little girl's three. All she's ever known about her father is he loves her, he's taken care of her, he's always been there for her, and now all of a sudden her loving father is holding her down while the doctor takes a knife and slices open this thing, draining the poison from this thing. The little girl starts screaming, Daddy, no, Daddy, no, please, Daddy, no. The pain got so in- intense that the little girl passed out. So now John has taken his daughter home, devastated. Well, a couple of weeks later, this thing comes back. So he's got to take her back to the doctor. When he pulls up into the parking lot of the doctor's office, she immediately starts screaming. She knows what this place is. And she starts screaming, Daddy, no, please, Daddy, no, please. I'd like to hear that as a parent. Knowing that it has to be done. Otherwise, this child could die. She doesn't know that. She's three years old. All she knows is her father, whom she loves, is subjecting her to this pain, needless pain in her mind. He brings her into the doctor's office there, again holds her down. She is screaming, screaming, Daddy, please no. The doctor lances this thing, and she eventually passes out again from the pain. On the way home, he said, "I I was actually angry with the Lord. I've never been angry with the Lord in my life. I was angry with the Lord. And I told him, Lord, why? Why did she have to go through this? And why did I have to be the one to hold her down? All she's ever known is how much I love her. Now she thinks I, I, I don't love her and, and I, and I want to hurt her. And John said, the Lord spoke to me very clearly. He said, John, sometimes in life, we have to subject people we love to some pain like you had to subject your daughter to some pain you did it because you love her not because you were trying to hurt her i know that you know that she didn't know it but john now you understand sometimes i have to subject you to pain and i'm thinking he was thinking about his wife who had just died you don't understand sometimes john why i allow things But you must understand and believe that I love you. I have your best interests at heart, eternally speaking. So that when pain comes, adversity, suffering, you don't automatically assume that I'm not a loving God and I want to just hurt you. You'll understand from this experience, just like you had to put your daughter through some pain because you love her and wanted her healed. I've got to do the same in your life. That's a powerful lesson. I've never forgotten that. I didn't go through it. It was so powerful to hear him tell the story. Because I think as a parent, we all relate, right? So Genesis 22, verse 10, And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now be careful. When you read the Bible, sometimes it sounds like God doesn't know everything. Like he's learning stuff. You read that and he goes, well, God says, oh, now I, now I understand. Now I've learned that you really do respect and love me and revere me. No. That's what's called an anthropomorphism, where God speaks in human terms and things we understand because otherwise we wouldn't connect with what he's saying. You have to understand God can't learn anything. He already knows everything. What he was really saying to Abraham was, not that now I know, but I've allowed this so that you you know. God wasn't learning. He was teaching. Abraham didn't know the depth of his love and commitment toward the Lord. God knew it. And God allowed this to happen because he was putting Abraham's faith and commitment to the test, not to benefit God, but to show Abraham where he was in his relationship with the Lord. That's why God does these tests in our lives. Verse 13, that Abraham lifted his eyes and look, looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. The Hebrew is Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Listen to that. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This tells me that Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. He knew. He uh, Back in John 8, verse 56, Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus is telling us that Abraham knew the gospel. He knew he was acting out prophecy uh, at that time of the day that God's Son would come to the earth, die on, on Moriah, Calvary, to redeem us from slavery from the very slavery to sin and death and Satan that our father Adam had sold us into in the Garden of Eden. Abraham didn't know this Redeemer's name, but he knew God would someday send his son to die and redeem us from Satan's control and set us free. In other words, guys, Abraham knew the gospel. You say, well, how can you make a statement like that? How can you make a claim? Abraham knew the gospel. Are you crazy? I'm just repeating what Paul said in Galatians 3, verse 8. Paul tells us that God preached the gospel to Abraham. Hold on to that. We'll come back to it in a second. Verse 15 Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says what? The Lord. Who's talking here? The Lord. What is he called earlier? The angel of the Lord. Don't let that throw you. Uh, this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So why is he called an angel? Because the word angel simply means messenger. Oftentimes a supernatural messenger from God, what we would call uh, an ordinary angel, if I could even put it that way. Most of the time we read in the Bible that, you know, when an angel is mentioned, it's, you know, Uh, Gabriel or Michael or something like that, right? But sometimes the term angel of the Lord, you got to look at the context, is used of a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ called a theophany or sometimes a Christophany. Jesus Christ is injected into this passage because it's all about him. Abraham is acting out what would happen 2,000 years later on that very mount where Jesus himself will go to the cross on Moriah. And right now the Lord Jesus Christ is overseeing this whole thing, this whole type that's unfolding in this chapter. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. Your descendants uh, will multiply your descendants as the stars of of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now that is a promise that God first stated to Abram at that time, In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, he repeats it in Genesis 15 when he promises that he was going to have so many heirs that uh, they would be as innumerable as the stars of heaven, the grains of of sand on the seashore, but all because of one particular seed. He mentions it here in verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The seed there is a reference to Jesus Christ who again is the focus of this whole story, this whole type. How do we know that the word seed in Genesis 22, verse 18 is a reference to Jesus Christ? We don't have to guess, we know. Because in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul said, "Now to, re- recounting this very chapter in Genesis, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, unto seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one and to your seed, who is Christ. In your seed, Abraham, Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Jesus, the Savior, Messiah, would someday be born one of Abraham's descendants. Of course, When Jesus went to the cross, rose again, anyone who puts their faith in him, I don't care what family, tribe, nation, kindred, language you are on the face of the earth. When anyone receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior into their heart, at that moment they become children of God, family of God. And that's how all the families of the earth would be blessed because all of them are going to have somebody in heaven someday. You can read Revelation 5. Around the throne of heaven, every tribe, kindred, nation, language is represented. God is no respecter of persons. He loves the whole world and gave His only begotten Son to die for the sins of all mankind. Nobody's excluded. Anyone can be saved. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Verse 18, Genesis 22, is reiterating the gospel. Now, that really concludes what I wanted to look at in Genesis 22, but I have to read verse 19. I just have to, okay? So listen now. Abraham returned to his young men who were at the base of the mount, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. The question is, where is Isaac? Is this Abraham came down from the mount and went with his two servants back to Beersheba. Where is Isaac? Okay, did Isaac stay up on the mount? Did he hang up there? Did he build a condo or something and just decide to stay up there? Look, I'm sure he came down from Mount Moriah with Abraham. But the Holy Spirit, writing through Moses, chose to leave Isaac's name out of the narrative. He's there by inference, of course, but not by name. This is fascinating to me. He disappears, Isaac does, after his resurrection, quote unquote. Remember? In the mind of Abraham, he was dead ever since God said, kill him, go three days to Mount Moriah, and he was ready to kill Isaac literally. God says, don't do it. At that moment, in the mind of of Abraham, Isaac was resurrected. Hebrews 11, verse 19. Isaac, after he is, you know, resurrected, Disappears from the narrative. We don't see him again until chapter twenty-four, where he's coming to meet his bride, Rebecca. This sends shivers up your spine when you realize Isaiah, Isaac is a type of Christ. Rebecca is a type of the bride of Christ, the church. The Holy Spirit manipulates the narrative to fit the type. Do you realize what he did here? You said the Holy Spirit lied? No, he didn't lie. He just purposely left. He's there by inference. They both came down from the mountain. That's obvious. But he purposely doesn't include Isaac's name because Christ, after his death and resurrection, he disappears back to the Father, right, from the earth. We don't see Jesus Christ again until we see in Scripture and we'll one day see literally him coming again to meet his bride at the rapture. Now, you know what? Others may read that and go, ah, big deal. No place. Yeah, you're, first of all, you're making all that up. Am I? Some people think, you know, the Bible is just a bunch of stories that were just thrown in there. I see the hand of God in every page. I mean, chapter 22 is one of the greatest typological chapters in the scriptures communicating, as I said, the greatest truth that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Wow. I mean, when I first read that, Abraham came down from the mountain. I'm thinking, where's Isaac? Oh, he came down too. But the Holy Spirit purposely leaves him out of the narrative because it has to fit the type where Christ disappears from the earth after his resurrection. We don't see him again until he's coming for his bride, the church. Wow. I don't know about you, but that, I get excited about that kind of stuff, you know. All right, back to John 8. Let's finish up. So, you know, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. We know what he's talking about now, right? Verse 57, Then the Jews, again the Pharisees, said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus was 33. Must have been a hard 33 years, okay? I don't mean that lightly. Can you imagine you're on the earth for the greatest mission God has ever sent anybody to the earth for? So important, God himself came you imagine how the enemy was beating on Jesus Christ every day? We see it in the garden where he sweat drops of blood. But is this one of the reasons why he fasted so often? Because he had to stay close to his father? I mean, you talk about, somebody said ministry is a contact sport. Wow. It certainly seems to be in Jesus' life. I mean, he was beat up. 33 years old, looked like he was 50. So they said, you know, you're not 50 years old yet. Have you seen Abraham? Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Guys, this last statement by Jesus in verse 58 can be translated, Before Abraham came into, into being, I am. Now, God's name is I am, right? Not I was or I will be. The great I am. The eternally existing one. This is what he was saying to them. I am the eternally existing God. In the mind of the Pharisees, that's blasphemy. Somebody calls themselves God. So what did they do? The punishment for blasphemy in the Old Testament was what? Stoning. They immediately... Picked up stones to kill him. But guys, this is the clearest declaration of divinity in the Gospels, where Jesus once again refers to himself as the Great I Am. And so the Pharisees immediately believed he was blaspheming, the punishment for which was stoning, so they picked up stones to kill him. And what did he do? He slipped out through their ranks. How did he do that? It was obviously something supernatural. It wasn't time for his death, not yet. We're about maybe five months away from the cross, maybe six. And he wouldn't die by stoning. All right, that ends the chapter. Let's circle back and finish with how Abraham knew the gospel. Remember I was teasing you with this a few weeks ago, all right? How did Abraham know the gospel? Some people are still skeptical, right? I mean, seriously? How could he even say that? Well, Paul said, yeah, how is that possible? Turn to Galatians 3 real quick. And let's read again what Paul says, starting in verse 6, Galatians 3. Paul said, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Yeah, that was part of the gospel, of course. That in Christ, anybody could be saved and become family in God. To understand how Abraham knew the gospel. And guys, he wasn't the only Old Testament saint to know the gospel. By the time we're finished, not only did the Old Testament saints know the gospel, but we read in Jude, verses 14 and 15, Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied the Lord is coming back to the earth with 10,000 or innumerable uh, a number of saints to first execute judgment before establishing his kingdom. They all knew the gospel. Even pagans knew the gospel. You say, well, you're losing me. To understand what we're talking about, you really have to go back to the fourth day of creation. Genesis 1, verse 14. Please turn there. That was the day the Lord created the sun, the moon, and the stars. Let me read it to you. Genesis 1.14 Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. The Hebrew word for seasons is moed, which is translated feasts in Leviticus 23 verses 2 and 3. Heard, read about the seven feasts of Moses or Israel, okay, of the Lord actually. Uh, But the Hebrew word moed uh, is translated feasts in Leviticus 23, verses 2 and 3. Hebrew scholars point out that the most accurate translation of the Hebrew word moed is divine appointment. Divine appointment. So in other words, part of the the purpose of these heavenly bodies, and again, sun, moon, stars, was to announce the coming each year of the feasts of God. Again, seven outlined in Leviticus 23. Which were divine appointments, really. Where he, God, and his people connected with each other in a very special way. They were divine appointments. They were expected to keep these feasts. And if they did not, they were excommunicated. They were cut off from their people. That's how important these feasts were. All right? Divine appointments. When God makes an appointment with you, you better keep that appointment. Okay? However, Genesis 1 verse 14 gives us another reason why God created the sun, moon, and especially the stars. They would not only be used to mark the passing of time in the sense of days and nights and of the months and seasons of the year, but listen, verse 14 tells us that God created the stars to be signs in the heavens. You may read that and have passed over it and not really understand exactly what's going on. God created the stars to be signs. The Hebrew word for signs is off, meaning beacons or signals, and suggests that the stars especially were placed in the heavens by God to serve as a beacon to guide the people of earth in a particular direction. Of course, it begs the question, what direction? And for that matter, what did God want to signal or announce to the inhabitants of the earth through the stars? Well, many believe the stars were given as astrological signs, the uh, astrology kind of thing. Many people today believe in their horoscope and uh, that the stars are there for ast- as astrological signs to announce important, uh, important events or to predict a person's future. Let me say this. Don't miss this. Astrology is an occult pagan practice. And all such forms of divination and fortune telling are strictly forbidden in Scripture. You can read Deuteronomy 18 and Isaiah 7 just to give you a flavor of how God denounces these things. They're pagan. They're demonic. You don't fool with them. We do know that Satan is a counterfeiter of God's truth. And so many see the Zodiac as a satanic counterfeit of something called the Hebrew Maseroth. What is the Maseroth? Well, the precise meaning of the word is uncertain. But in its context from Scripture, it has something to do with the constellations. We know this from Job 38, verses 1 and 2. Excuse me, verses 31 and 32, which reads, Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades? or loose the belt of Orion. These are all constellations. Can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Or can you guide the great bear, Big Dipper, with its cubs? There are many who believe, guys, that the stars, and in particular the constellations, were placed in the heavens by God to point to and announce to the people of the earth something very important. What is it? The gospel of his son. The gospel of his son. This they believe is what Paul meant in Galatians 3.8 where he said that God preached the gospel to Abraham but Abraham wasn't the only one. But since Abraham is important to the doctrine Paul is presenting in Galatians 3, he singles Abraham out. Many believe it was... Through, the idea is though that um, as we've already learned today, it's obvious from Genesis 22 that Abraham knew the gospel. And that someday God would send his son to die for the sins of the world on Mount Moriah. But you say, well, how exactly did he know the gospel? Who preached it to him? Many believe it was through the Maserat, which some have called the gospel in the stars. Now be careful. Some Christians, when they hear this teaching, reject it out of hand. Because they believe what we're saying is that God preached the gospel through the Zodiac. No. God does not use occult things to preach His truth. He doesn't use Ouija boards or crystal balls or anything like that, tarot cards, to preach His truth. The Zodiac is a demonic perversion of something God had created, the Maseroth. When we say that God wrote the gospel in the stars, we're not presenting or promoting the Zodiac. We're talking about the Maseroth, which was what God put forth in the beginning and the devil perverted. Dr. D. James Kennedy writes on this subject using Genesis 1 verse 14, where God said he made the stars for signs. He uses it as a jumping off point. And I'll read to you an article called The Gospel in the Stars, written by Kennedy, who's with the Lord now. You can Google it and read the whole article. I'm just going to read a little bit because our time is running out, okay? Um, but here's what he, this is fascinating to me. Maybe it would be fascinating to you. I don't know. But here's what Kennedy said. He said, a sign is something which proclaims a message. What is the message proclaimed by the stars? I would like to talk to you about what might be called the gospel in the stars. We are told in Psalm 19, verses 1 to 3, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. The stars are preaching something to all of us. Kennedy said, God gave to all of the world a proclamation of the gospel in the stars. A picture is worth a thousand words, we are told. And God has indeed painted the sky and made it a picture gallery replete with the glories of his redemption. There exists in the writings of virtually all civilizations, all nations, a description of the major stars in the heavens, some of which might be called the constellations of the zodiac or the signs of the zodiac, of which there are 12. Again, that's a perversion. But all nations, all cultures, they all have These 12 signs, which pagans have come to call the Zodiac, we as Christians call the Maserat. But it's fascinating to me. He said that um, all these uh, civilizations, these nations, uh, all have the same 12 signs, okay? Uh, If you go back in time to Rome or beyond that to Greece or before that to Egypt or to Persia or Assyria or Babylonia, regardless of how far back you go, there's a remarkable phenomenon. All nations have the same 12 signs representing the same 12 things placed in exactly the same order. Archaeologists, historians, antiquarians have searched the dullest, dustiest libraries, uncovered the oldest tablets, ciphered the most difficult hieroglyphics, and have failed to discover how it is that all over the world the same signs exist. Remarkably, the stars in the heavens which represent those 12 signs bear absolutely no resemblance to the pictures... Or the signs themselves. For example, what we call the Big Dipper has been called Ursa Major, the great bear. One thing is that, for sure, is that it does not look anything like a great bear. Neither do any of the other signs look like what they're supposed to represent. Where did their names come from? The Bible tells us that God has named all the stars and the hosts of heaven that he has numbered them, ordered them, and set them in the firmament to be signs. The original meaning, Maseroth, was corrupted into something which is demonic, Zodiac, something which was satanic, something which was counterfeit, something which has given birth to what is known as modern astrology, which the Bible repeatedly condemns and warns Christians against, The corruption began in Babylon with the Tower of Babel. You can go back and check our study out. Uh, I think it was uh, Genesis 9 or 10 on that uh, issue. It is well that you have nothing to do with modern astrology whatsoever because of its corruption and satanic aspects. But in order that you might appreciate what God has done, let us look briefly at a few pictures of the Zodiac. Uh, The word Zodiac is thought to mean circle of animals, although some linguists say that it comes from an ancient Hebrew word meaning a path or a step. Actually, what Kennedy says, actually is displaying the path or the steps to salvation. In other words, the gospel. Now, I won't read the entire article, but let me just whet your appetite to study this on your own. And, uh, you know, he mentions the Zodiac, but again, it's talking about what God originally designed the Maseroth, right? But... um Dr. Kennedy said, um, he said, um, uh, the Maseroth starts with Virgo, a picture of a woman. Dr. Kennedy says, you can look at the stars in Virgo until you are green in the face, and they would never look like a woman. But the picture which has gone with them down through the ages in every nation in the world is a picture of a woman. The woman is clearly identified as a virgin. Virgo means virgin in Latin, Hebrew, Greek, and in uh, Arabic. So the first thing we see is the emphasis upon the virginity of this woman. The next sign is Coma. Coma means the desired or the longed-for one, and is a picture of a woman with a child in her lap. The Book of Haggai tells us the, the, the desire of all nations shall come, talking about Messiah. You can read that in Haggai 2 verse 7. The fourth sign is Crux. Crux, Kennedy says, Crux, is the Southern Cross. It is one constellation which looks like that for which uh, for, looks like that for which it was named because it consists of four stars placed very clearly in the shape of a cross, as if God did not want us to miss it. In Hebrew, it is called Adam, which means cutting off. Christ is that one who was cut off, speaking of the cross from the land of the living for our sins. You can check out Daniel 9, verse 26, who says Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. He would be executed for a capital crime, but he himself would be innocent. give you one more. The last sign is Leo. Kennedy said, finally we come to Leo the lion, a picture of Christ who is the lion of the tribe of Judah coming again. He is coming this time not in humiliation, but in great power and glory. The lion's claws are right over Hydra, the serpent, who he is about to finally and totally destroy. Well, when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth before he establishes his kingdom, he does bring judgment, right? And what does he do to, uh, to the false prophet? Well, to the devil, first of all, he casts him into Hades, right? Where he's bound for a thousand years. He does away with the enemy of our souls. He'll never be a problem for us ever again. Dr. Kennedy finishes by saying, the art gallery of God painted in the sky is a great and glorious picture. All ancient traditions, all ancient uh, 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 mythologies, all pagan religions are nothing more than corruptions of the ancient gospel given by God to Adam and written in the celestial sky for all the world to see how glorious it is. That whether we talk about the special revelation God has given to us in his word or the general revelation which he has given to us in nature, the story is always the same. The seed of the woman will destroy the seed of the serpent. At last there came that one who was born of a woman, virgin woman, who came to die and rise again that we might live forever. I hope that as you go out uh, on a given evening and look up at the glories of the starry skies you will be more impressed than ever with the greatest uh, with the greatness and wonder of our God and the majesty of his grace and mercy end quote. Now, I'll just add to that as we close the next time you read psalm 19 which says in part the heavens declare the glory of god well maybe you'll have a deeper understanding a greater appreciation for what those words actually mean, people have said to me over the years, How fair is it to send people to hell who have never heard the gospel? How fair fair is that you know I mean, what happened to all those people that died in the Old Testament before Christ came? They didn't know the gospel it was unfair for God to cast them into hell. My contention is that God preached the gospel to mankind ever since day before the creation. And apparently, they figured out what he was saying because Abraham knew it, Enoch knew it, and a bunch of pagans knew who God was. In fact, God made the promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would someday come forth Messiah who would be the Savior of mankind. This was not something that God was hiding. He proclaimed it openly and continues to proclaim it openly through all of us as his church. We don't need stars anymore. We are the stars of the the shining ones who are to go into the darkness of this world and be lights to declare his truth, his gospel. Amen? All right. Next week, hallelujah. (laughs) Be in John 9. Father, we thank you for your word. It is so powerful. It is so incredible. And Lord, as we read your word, help us not to pass over anything lightly, but to read it carefully for what you might want to be teaching us in these passages. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.